0: Everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how
1: you doing? I'm doing good. Nick Carter said that every day is going to be materially worse, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty good right now.
0: Yeah, Nick put out some bangers on this episode, so I think I'm going to try and, and turn those into little clips and send them around Twitter because there there were a couple of sentences that he just said that it was like, oh wow, we got a gunshot, gunshot to my heart. Uh, Really good episode with Nick Carter here. Uh, For those that don't know, Nick Carter is a prolific thinker and writer in this space. He talks a bunch about similar themes, uh, and so I wanted to get him on to really clarify what he thinks about uh, when he thinks about crypto. Everyone is in this space for different reasons, and I, I I was getting the idea that Nick was in this space for very specific reasons, but I hadn't heard him articulate them. So we got Nick to get on POV Crypto, share his values and why he's here, and then also his thoughts on Bitcoin versus Ethereum.
1: Yep, before we get into that, let's talk about our sponsors. First up, eToro. You guys know how it is. It is one of the best spots that you can get your crypto and take it off the exchange. It is a full one-stop shop. Buy your sats there, pull them off, go and do some index investing, go copy trade. You can even practice using fake cash inside the application. eToro, one-stop shop for all things crypto. b.tc backslash eToro POV is our link. Make sure that you go there so they know that we sent you.
0: If you are building an application on ethereum you need to get that application audited if it manages users funds if users funds are going through it you have a responsibility to keep that application as safe as possible Quantstamp is the leading smart contract auditing firm in ethereum their list of previous clients should be the thing that convinces you that they are the right auditing firm for you but just as a teaser some of their previous clients are MakerDAO, Chainlink, Pooled Together, Sableer, RDAI, the list goes on. Hundreds of millions of dollars of crypto assets flowing through DeFi protocols that QuantStamp themselves audited. So, QuantStamp, thank you for keeping DeFi safe. Get your smart contract audited at expertaudits.com. QuantStamp, thank you for being a sponsor of the podcast.
1: Yeah, so getting back to the interview, this was a ton of fun. Uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting Nick a couple of times, and every single time, he just brings so much insight. He has a way of really thinking about things in a very original and kind of clear-headed uh, way, and and you can just see that throughout the conversation. It was really wide-ranging. Uh, we talk about everything from Proof of work to proof of stake to stable coins to how crypto gets adopted and, when that lo- and what that looks like, um, bear cases for crypto. We really touch on everything and, and Nick really brings it, just like David said. So, yeah, without further ado, Nick Carter.
0: Nick Carter, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. So, Nick, we have wanted to get you on here for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, You are a prolific thinker in this space, With which I think, uh, from my perspective, your ideas and your thoughts and the things you say come off as original, uh, which is rare in this space. Uh, And so, kind of wanted to get you on, because mainly for my own curiosity, what your deal is, what do you care about, about crypto? Why does crypto interest you? What... About crypto, do you really resonate with? Like, what what are your values, and how do crypto uh, how does crypto bring those out? And then we also want to get into some Bitcoin versus Ethereum stuff. But first off, if we could start with uh, what your deal is, that'd be great. What
2: is my deal? What's your deal? Um, that's a very good question. Actually, I, I have to think about what my deal is. Um, I also heard that there would be fighting on the show, so I've come ready to fight. Uh, Mm
0: -hmm. Most uh, guests don't know that, so you're you're ahead of guests. Yeah.
2: Um, Let me see. So, you know, I actually think about this a lot. Um, Like, why do I find, you know, Bitcoin in particular compelling, crypto industry at large? You know, something which is common is, like, people will accuse Bitcoiners of, like, contingency. Like, you know, they they fell into Bitcoin and then they just, like, stuck with it out of the sense of, like, orthodoxy and duty and not wanting to expose himself to new ideas. And I think for some people, like not everyone, but some people like there's like a set of values that they didn't know until like consciously were important, but they realized when Bitcoin came along that like Bitcoin instantiated those values like really well. Um, So like notions about like uh, depoliticizing money, extricating the state from the money supply, um, the neutrality of money, you know, getting rid of like the ability for the people closest to the money spigot to exploit it for like their own particular gain and, and their like particular purposes. To me, like there's a set of values that instantiate like Bitcoinism, like the velocity of, the philosophy of Bitcoin. And like, it just so happens that Bitcoin is good at fulfilling, at like satisfying those values. Um, so that's my long-winded way of saying like, I happen to think most of those things are pretty important. Um, and, you know, I think Bitcoin does a good job of, like, filling that niche. And I think something else could have done that as well. Like, if Bitcoin didn't exist, I might be interested in, like, a gold-backed stable coin Who knows? Uh, or e-gold, you know, or Liberty Reserve or something. Uh, those are all, like, super valid experiments. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I would say I'm, like, Austrian uh, adjacent. I don't think I'm, like, a genuine Austrian or anything. I didn't, like, grow up breathing like, Mises and Rothbard and stuff. And, like, in terms of, like, how I actually found my way into this industry, uh, I was just out of curiosity. Like, I've always been interested in, like, niche ideas, like, weird, you know, weird ideas. Um, you know, spent a lot of time on, like, 4chan and Slashdot and Reddit, like, especially in the early days of Reddit when it was still good. And I just came across Bitcoin one day. I thought it was like funny and weird and like kind of wacky and zany. Um, and then it took me like five years to take it seriously. Um, it, was, it was like just like a fun joke, you know, in like 2013. Like I thought Dogecoin was hilarious. Tried to mine some Dogecoin. Um, so it was just like, a, it was like a historical accident. And then it took me a really long time to actually realize that there's like some really solid, philosophical economic and like political reasons why this industry like is important why it matters
1: you are you are one of the most famous people in the quote-unquote dogecoin cohort kind of like the 2013 group of folks that got into this stuff because of dogecoin does that help you kind of like what's your opinion on how adoption happens in this space because i think a lot of bitcoiners um will look at um things that aren't bitcoin and think that they're actually harmful um Personally, I have the opposite opinion to that, and I'm curious what you think.
2: No, yeah, and, like, to be clear, like, I'd heard of Bitcoin, but I'd never used cryptocurrency, like, actually used it in any meaningful way on-chain until Dogecoin came along, and it was, like, just fun enough that it pushed me over the threshold into, like, you know, running the software and, like, doing some transactions. Um, So, like, it takes, like, a hook, I think, you know? Like, most people are super, like, apathetic, and not interested in like trying out new things especially if they're like complicated and hard so there's definitely a viral hook required there has to be like some like extremely evident value proposition because most people aren't like tinkerers you know they're not like super curious people I've been always like kind of against the school of thought that like mass adoption is like inevitable or guaranteed or that we have to like force it if it's not happening like I think that's a lot has gone wrong by people trying to build things that are like designed for mass adoption or trying to like force it by like lobbying people to go out and start like transacting with crypto. Like crypto is a pretty user hostile technology, Uh, just like public keys, securing public keys is like a very difficult thing. Um, So yeah, I actually don't really buy buy like the teleology of like Bitcoin or crypto is something that like needs to have mass adoption. I, I think the world will adopt it to the degree that it's useful and it, like, improves the world. Um, hopefully, we can, like, help craft it and render it into a shape, like, such that it is, like, pretty useful. But, like, that's not guaranteed.
1: Some people think that the threshold of, like, Bitcoin's utility or crypto's utility is infinite, right? Like, what do you think that it is, you know, going to be the, the, the monetary standard of the world? Like, do you think that it could be something in the hybrid role? Like, what, what do you think is most likely at this point?
2: What I think is most likely is both Bitcoin and Ethereum succeed as like monetary media, you know, like a settlement medium. And just because there's so much momentum built up, like the, t- this, the precise technological trajectory, I have no idea. I, I just know that there's like enough momentum and like mind share, And they both pass through this like adoption gauntlet and like relative fairness of launch, not perfectly fair. Uh, obviously, and I think they'll like have a role to play because like they are an asset that's no one's liability, which is like very, very important as far as like banking is concerned. However, in the near term, I think to the extent that like crypto is a thing, um, I think stable coins are much more likely to have like an immediate impact on the world. Uh, lots of people would be like accuse me of being like really like uncreative for saying that or or not thinking big enough, but um, you know, it's obvious to me that the dollar is like the apex predator here. And the most like disruptive thing that can happen in the near term is just like finding a way to distribute the dollar to people in the developing world without requiring them going through the banking system, just them being able to acquire it frictionlessly. Because if you like ask people what they want, they like all know what the dollar is, has a great brand, they kind of know what it's worth. Um, and it's like relatively stable it's not perfectly stable obviously um in the next like 18 months two years i think that's what we're gonna see that's gonna be the thing that the press reports on just like crypto dollarization
0: so you said that bitcoin is good at uh some things specifically with instantiating uh values that are nebulous and making them concrete uh you cited uh uh, illustrating that perhaps no one should control the money spigot, uh, that uh, the, the money and politics should be separated. And I also know that you are very into the concept of property rights, which Bitcoin definitely uh, enables. Uh, so, with with valence to Bitcoin, capital and authority, like what problems do you see that are in the world today that are relevant to uh, that Bitcoin provides a potential solution for and why is bitcoin specifically enabled that providing that that solution
2: yeah and and like i would say bitcoin isn't like the sole solution provider for like the problem set that exists here but like probably the biggest problem in the world is just like poor governance um you know to be like as expansive as possible um the vast vast majority of people live in like dysfunctional regimes they might live under authoritarianism uh generally that means their property rights are not being respected um you know the the like state of affairs we happen to live under is like not the norm for most people right um and the norm is like sovereign currency defaults like banks not being reliable uh inflation you know um holding cash because you don't trust the banking sector or the financial sector. Um, you know, so like we like we certainly have a set of problems here in the US that are like fairly acute. But for the like average typical person the world over, I'd say the bigger problem is um, you know, effectively the unreliability of your like set of financial tools that you have access to. Uh and, you know, the number one issue is like states have a local monopoly on currency on like legal currency on like legal tender um so i think bitcoin just gives you a nice exit ramp potentially um i don't know if it's like perfect because it there you need like critical massive liquidity for it to even be a plausible thing to do and of mind share you know people need to know what bitcoin is tools need to exist to use it so you know it's going to be like a very long slog if this thing is to actually make a difference at all I think Venezuela is like, people talk about Venezuela a lot, Bitcoin's main use in Venezuela is a more convenient way to import foreign currencies. So it's like a bridge currency between uh, the Colombian Real, I think, or forgot what the Colombian currency is called, Uh, the Peruvian uh, Sol, I think. So there's like a big Venezuelan diaspora and there's like local Bitcoins. Uh, merchants both in Colombia and Peru and then there's like local Bitcoins on the ground in Venezuela they're not actually physically in Venezuela they're like most of them are in Miami um, is what I've learned and so Bitcoin is just like the bridge currency and because it's like a highly liquid online non-state affiliated currency it's like very good at like facilitating that like exchange
0: which ironically is what XRP was designed to be right exactly substrate currency between others right precisely that is exactly what xrp was meant to solve
2: the problem is that xrp like isn't sufficiently liquid because it wasn't like bootstrapped off of this like organic just groundswell of like usage bitcoin just so happened to be like sufficiently liquid kind of thing so it's like kind of funny cuz like I, that's that's what
0: xrp was designed for But so that actually softballs us right into kind of our next question, which is your thoughts on organic versus engineered money. Uh, And so like for engineered money, we have uh, perhaps the dollar or fiat money or the topic of Bretton Woods. And then with organic money, we have the topic of gold, Austrian money, Bitcoin. How do you think about these two different categories?
2: well i i don't know if i agree with the framing actually like bitcoin is engineered right it's engineered to a very specific set of tolerances like and in a certain way bitcoin is like quite like artificial in that like it has these very strange properties that no other money has right so like gold there's a supply response if uh demand increases rapidly right so like if Ah, uh, people bid up the price of gold. A bunch of new gold mines come online and start producing more gold. So that moderates the um the exchange rate, which is like potentially like quite a good property, right? Because it just reduces volatility. So, like Bitcoin is like weird in that it has the difficulty adjustment, which is this like crazy thing, uh, which like keeps the supply schedule totally rigid. No other currency has that. Um, so like in a sense, it's like, Kind of like super cold and like robotic in nature, and it manifests in this like crazy volatility that we have all the time. Um, So, Bitcoin seems really artificial to me, but like that's because we wanted the good properties, you know?
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, But I guess your point maybe was more like, you know, state money versus money, which is like a bottom up phenomenon. Yes, top Um, down versus bottom up. And, you know, I think we're always gonna have a combination of the two, and like, the question is can we build tools such that normal folks will have the choice to go for those alternatives and like so far the state has been really really good at suppressing alternatives right um and they do it in like a few ways so one is like legal tender laws obviously Uh, another one is like tax laws right so like the dollar has a very special tax status in the u.s right not just like you have to use it to pay tax but like if you hold dollars and the value of dollars changes, you're not like on the hook for the capital gains, right? But like you are for Bitcoin because Bitcoin is treated as like property, which is like kind of silly. So like, that's just like a small thing, but I think it like makes a really like significant difference. Like it makes life much harder. It like puts the IRS target on everyone's back. Like, so... Yeah there there's like a few ways that like the state very deliberately distinguishes like the like officially sanctioned monies and then like you know the organic monies so we haven't done like a great job of like pushing back at that in my opinion
1: Kind of on this tune I want to talk about stable coins but kind of in this realm of uh I guess engineered uh top down currencies versus organic like where do you see something like a Libra and potentially like mechanisms like airdropping it to facebook users or other things like that in order to like bootstrap it on a network like how do you see something like that like engineering liquidity over time
2: i don't think airdrops are necessary actually like to me libra is just like a different wrapper for sending dollars around right um so it's not like trying to solve the problem of distribution which is like the hardest problem right that's like the thing that socialists and capitalists argue about like Who should have the wealth, you know? So, like, trying to, like, um, re-engineer the, like, UTXO set for all of society is, like, an intractable problem. I don't think Facebook can fix it, you know? Um, But I think Facebook probably has a big advantage in that, like, they already have a lot of commerce tools on their platform. Like, Instagram is a big e-commerce website. Um, WhatsApp, like, you know, like... Facebook has a marketplace. These things are like natively already firing on all cylinders. So in terms of like bootstrapping usage and like specifically a walled garden where like the units circulate on their internal ledger, like I think they actually have a great advantage there. So I I think Libra is gonna work if they're like able to actually, you know, get through the regulatory gauntlet.
1: Um, kind of on the same line as stable coins, you mentioned that in the short term, you think that they could be, you know, an even bigger impact than something like Bitcoin. I'm kind of curious, like, at least that makes sense to me, especially because we're still living in like a dollarized world, like we're still living in the dollars world. Um, but as things continue to escalate, like, what is it going to take for the paradigm to shift and for us to live in like a a world that's more uh, hard money oriented.
2: Well, you guys saw what happened in the last three weeks, right? So the Fed, like effectively, Fed plus Congress said they're gonna bring six trillion new dollars into existence. I know people are gonna like quibble like, oh, it's like the Fed printing money, whatever. Like they're, you know, they're basically printing money, whatever. and yet, the dollar rallied. The dollar index went up like 15 percent or something preposterous, right? And so, like, all the like gold bugs and like the bitcoiners too were like, "What the hell is this? Like, shouldn't like the dollar's like exchange rate be decreasing? Like, what's going on?" Not but like, me. <laughs> see, see, you knew. Um,
1: the problem is man. like,
2: yeah, like all the world's debts are like denominated in dollars like something like 80%, something preposterous, like 70% of international trade is settled in dollars. Even if the counterparty is neither party is American. Um, you know, so the network effects are so, so strong. And like in a crisis, um, you know, like everybody is just going to run to the dollar. It makes perfect sense.
0: Um, well we're we're comparing two different time scales, right so inflation sets in across long time scales and dollar demand in a crisis set in across very short time scales yeah,
2: I think the yes, I think the risk it, although if you look at inflation expectations like in theory the like market is like good at pricing things, right you look at five year ahead inflation expectations, they're like crazy low, they're like down to like one percent or even below one percent right so the market. Not only like is there no inflation today, but they don't expect inflation tomorrow.
0: Um, which is so like I recently, why. I recently heard a theory that I resonate with, uh, that I'm just starting to chew on, which is that Bitcoin represents a very high beta to the U.S. dollar. Uh, the The Bitcoin fight versus all other fiat currencies is not the same as the fight versus the U.S. dollar because it's reserve asset versus reserve asset, and so. Inflation in the U.S. dollar can be very, still very low while Bitcoin still appreciates versus the U.S. dollar due to a hedge against U.S. dollar, not inflation, but issuance, right? And so it's really just Bitcoin is actually a high beta to the the value of the U.S. dollar versus the rest of the fiat world. How do you feel about that?
2: I don't know if uh, I've never thought about beta in the context of currencies, um, and given that like they're typically not correlated, that you wouldn't have seen beta like if you actually did a regression or anything. However, I do take issue with like the narrative among bitcoiners that like for Bitcoin to succeed, like the dollar needs to fail. I think that's totally nonsense. I think the if the u s can actually handle this crisis and restore their grip on like the international set of institutions you know and like ward off the influence of china i think the dollar is going to do great um because like the u.s economy is like the most dynamic in the world by far uh and you know the feds like misbehaving now but like historically they've done like an okay job um so like yeah i think the dollar like the effect of like just like digitizing currency in like a really direct way and potentially digitizing it in like Public key bearer assets, which is like the most aggressive way, like you get real nice claims from that, like nice assurances. That's a very aggressive thing. Like, that to me compromises the ability of developing com- countries to like actually police capital controls. And like, if this concept catches on, whether it's Libraization or dollarization, like, I'm almost certain there's gonna be a wave of sovereign defaults. Massive inflation, like we saw in 1997, 1998. First, the Asian financial crisis, and then the the Russian, uh, you know, former USSR, all, they all had, like, defaults, right, at the same time. I'm almost certain we're going to see the same thing again. If you look where debt is in the world, it's in emerging markets. Uh, if there's, like, a protracted slowdown here, those are all going to blow up, and we're going to see currencies depreciate, like, 60 70% against the dollar. You know, now that, like, we have crypto... And like crypto financial rails for the dollar, like the timing on that is like is pretty good. So I think it's definitely going to accelerate like just the existence of crypto. Is it going to accelerate the collapse of, of lots of these, you know, nation states, or at least the collapse of their like their sovereign currency? Um, you know, like I don't even know if Bitcoin is the direct beneficiary of all that. The Bitcoin project is going to take like fifty years. You know, there's like a lot to do. We've like we barely we've barely done anything. Like there aren't even any Bitcoin banks yet. There's like barely any Bitcoin banks. So, we, like right, we have that, custodial institutions. We don't have banks.
1: That that's spicy. Um, I'm I'm. I think there's a lot where we can dive into the stablecoin thing, but um, I do want to move into Bitcoin versus Ethereum. Earlier, you you mentioned that you think both Bitcoin and Ethereum have enough momentum to you know quote unquote succeed um can you talk about your kind of view of bitcoin and ethereum together um and how do they kind of compare and why do you think they're both going to succeed yeah
2: yeah and i have a little bit of headline risk here as well too because people could misinterpret that statement um as me saying something nice about ethereum um but uh i think they're very very different projects right like philosophically uh from the core very different um not just because, like the founders have different sets of values, you know, and clearly like the communities tend to believe in different things um, but because like ethereum like set itself at inception in direct contracts to Bitcoin, like trying to be more innovative, um, trying to increase the pace of change, and like that was meant to be a selling point, like some people would say that's a good thing, some people say it's a bad thing, right it's It's just like a different like you know, trade-off, you know, in the opportunity space. Um, And I see in, like, the Ethereum community, like, an enthusiasm for the project, which I highly doubt is, like, going away anytime soon, right? And, like, from my perspective, like, these aren't as much technological projects as they are, like, political communities that express a certain, like, opinion about what money should be like. Um... And like the implementation details don't actually matter that much to me. You know, like if Bitcoin had been implemented in some other way, I don't know exactly how you would have done it. Cause I think it was like done in a really good way. Um, but it still had like roughly the same properties. Like it wouldn't have mattered to me that they like used some other hash function or had a slightly different supply schedule or something or other. Um, and like, to the extent that like both of these communities are undergirded by like uh, consistent and like coherent value sets, like I think that that can be destroyed. Like ultimately these things are just like a UTXO set or an account set and then like a set of rules for like moving the little, flipping the bits. Um, you know, like Ethereum is gonna like jettison its first set of rules and move to a new set of rules, right? what's the consistent thing there it's like the name it's like the community but it's also just like the account balances so ethereum just like cultivates like a set of accounts like who owns what um and you can like strip everything out and like rebuild the whole thing from scratch and you still have like effectively what is the same thing um so you know like the big question is like can they have a coherent like set of like political values which are like sufficient to keep people like interested in the project and not like you know veer off into other directions or get attracted to other shiny objects or something i think there's like still an open question around that but like ethereum has like good persistence for bitcoin i don't think uh there's any doubt whatsoever like bitcoin's values are like very nicely encoded um you know they are there's like a strong commitment to those values actually if you look at like the first post on Bitcoin.org where Satoshi like described Bitcoin, like the cliffs notes of Bitcoin. There were like three bullet points. And he like laid out everything uh in like three sentences. And that's kind of all it takes. Um you know it's like quite uh, quite an easy thing to describe ultimately uh the like core values that are like inherent to Bitcoin and you know, history has like shown that like the values actually supersede the code, right? Like, this is something that Hasu has written about, I think. Uh, like, if there's a conflict between the core value or the social contract, whatever you want to call it, and like the actual code itself, like the social contract wins, right? Like, mm-hmm. with the, the overflow bug or like any number of things. So, that's why I'm like not that nervous about the long term fate of these like systems, because there's like a political zeal. And like, it's not political in a bad way, like oh, we're like fundamentalists or anything. It's political in that like, the, there are, they look shallowly like technology projects, but actually they're a, um, they're a way of expressing certain political ideas and opinions about the nature of money. Um, and to the extent that those ideas make sense and like appeal to people, they're always gonna
0: exist. I really really resonate with that and and the the infighting between Bitcoin and ethereum simply comes out of I, I think a on a general level a lack of understanding as what are meaning the meaningful differences between these systems uh, but then at the end of the day, uh, especially me me especially i'm definitely one of the people that, that I am most guilty of in, in doing this, but the the idea is that there is no way to have zero uh, competition between the chains at some at some point they do compete and at some point they do compete for internet money and the idea is that you know money money can be propped up by jurisdictions that's why there's so many different fiat currencies of the world there's like basically one per country on the internet there's only one jurisdiction so when it comes to being internet money uh, the fight over liquidity is huge Uh, And so, you know, these, these different values are great. And they, these different, the, the projects, these, the Bitcoin and Ethereum project are very different and they have very different goals. However, the fight over liquidity is, there's only one thing of liquidity. There's not two types of liquidity, right? So when, when it comes to the actual competition between Bitcoin and Ethereum, how do you see these things competing? And and maybe you can also compare and contrast your vision, your vision of the win condition for each blockchain,
2: yeah, I mean, you're you're right. They do compete, and like I always disagreed with the framing that like Ethereum was something like fundamentally different from Bitcoin. Like it was like a computational lubricant, or it was gas, or something. Mm-hmm. It's like no, dude, this thing is a monetary good. Uh, you know, even if it wasn't being represented as such, it's like a settlement medium for the internet, and uh, it's always been that. You know, people would say like, oh, the narrative changed, like, ETH is money or whatever. Like, it may have been that the founders of Ethereum didn't know what they were making, but yeah, it's like it was a money from day one. In fact, all cryptocurrencies are Mm proto-monies. It's just most of them are terrible at being money. Uh, And like, to me, the important vectors upon which they compete is this like, innovation versus uh, not conservatism, but like, Reliability trade off basically. So, like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a significant risk altering anything about the nature of the money because, like, you're talking about people's property. So, like, it makes sense to me that Bitcoin is the way that it is in terms of its development process. But it's also potentially very valid to say it's well, like, well, things are still young and like we're still early. Like, we're not talking about trillions of dollars, we're just talking about billions of dollars. Like, we can still tweak it, you know, like, we can still do, like, experiments. Um, and so, like, that to me is, like, the fundamental competition between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Like, innovation with with the potential risk of, like, excessive complexity or potentially even um, giving it, certain insiders too much discretion over the nature of the money. You could certainly accuse Ethereum of that. I think that's, like, one of the best, like, critiques of Ethereum is, like, you're making it too malleable. And the risk of malleability is not like just bugs per se, but it's just like politics, like creeping into the process, you know? And like neither Bitcoin nor Ethereum is fully apolitical. I'd love them to be, but like the very parameters that you've set are political in nature, right? So like something as simple as a hash hash function, you might say like, well, like a hash function is just like, does it like matter? Like, yeah, it totally matters, right? because you're picking winners and losers in the miners or, you know, the, the validators. Um, and if you, so, like, what I don't like about Ethereum is, that like, they made the hash function malleable in terms of trying to get this nice property of ASIC resistance. I'm not even, I don't even have an opinion on, like, if it's possible or not. Um, I've actually moderated my opinion on that recently. Uh, I think it might be possible. But the problem is, is that you're always going to periodically have this debate between, like, the GPU miners and, like, the people that build ASICs. And they're going to, like, try and, like, infiltrate the political process a little bit. And, like, to me, that, like, sort of, like, not fully, but, like, a little bit delegitimizes it. Because it's, like, uh, now there's all this ambiguity. And where there's ambiguity, there's, like, opportunity, you know, to, like, lobby the developers. And, like, it's just a mess. You know, so that's what Nick Zabos, you know, talks about when he says social scalability. So by making some things like fixed, like that makes them easier for people to unite around. So like to me, that's like the fundamental the fundamental battle between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Do you make things fixed and like potentially move too slow in order to buy um, you know political consistency and like the ability to resist corruption. Or do you go, like, pro-innovation, let's, like, it doesn't matter. The network's still small, even though it seems big, it's still small, Um, you know. And so, like, I don't know about win conditions. I think think crypto has already done, like, way, way, way better than I expected. So, I think it kind of already won. (laughs) (laughs) Like, have you guys tried to send a wire recently?
0: Sucks. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so You, you yeah, talked about uh, eth- the founders of Ethereum and not really knowing what they were making with Ether, with g- the genesis of Ether. Like, in order to spin out Ethereum, they needed to have a native asset to make that whole thing run. Whether or not they kn- understood that they were making Internet proto money, uh, I'm going to go ahead and guess that they didn't really think about that too much. Um, yeah, or maybe the, they
2: just like they didn't realize the magnitude of what they were doing, right, kind of thing. You know? right. Or the the uh, the stakes,
0: you know. Mm-hmm. Bitcoiners will often, or, or a thing that some Bitcoiners rally around is the ICO, the Ether ICO, the token sale, the, the pre-mine. Uh, in the conquest to be internet money, the fight to be internet money, is Ethereum fair in that sense? Like Bitcoin has this great magical genesis story. Does Ethereum's genesis story significantly taint it in any way and, and add friction to it as money?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I've thought about this a lot over the years, like, is there a way to like design an ICO, which is like gives you all the good qualities that you want? Um, and like I think it's no because like there's so many variables, it's like the biggest multivariate optimization problem ever. And so like it just comes down to kind of like lock and like, did the set of parameters you chose yield like a maybe okay outcome? Uh, I think Bitcoin got, like, really, really, really lucky uh, in terms of, like, it didn't have a financial value for, like, a year. So, it just circulated around, like, crazy. That's great. You know, you want to have churn in the set of people who own the thing. Um, It had a founder who, like, apparently appears altruistic, you know, like, fingers crossed, TBD. Um, And, of course, like, proof of work is, like, one of the most amazing things ever. Uh, Sorry to the proof of stake fans. Proof of Work means that you can issue new units without seniorage. I mean, you have seniorage, but it's like competitive seniorage, like free market seniorage. That to me is like the most amazing property. So like the fact that Ethereum had Proof of Work is like great. I know a lot of Ethereans would be like, we got to get off Proof of Work ASAP. Uh, But like I'm so, I think Ethereum doesn't know how good they had it in terms of having at least part of the supply be issued by proof of work. I think that gave Ethereum a huge amount of vibrancy in, in, the, in the ownership set. And like, that's what we want. We want as many people as possible to own this thing. We want the Gini coefficient to be as low as possible. Um, and so like, I think they have the ratio wrong, Like, not that I can do anything about it, but like, between the amount of units that were issued by proof of work and the issued by ICO, because like, ultimately the Ethereum treasury is like super big. But like, it would have been hard to forecast that ahead of time as well. Um, yeah, I think the best ICO, ICO is like the counterparty model where you actually burn the coins on the other end. Um, uh, if you guys remember counterparty. Um, the reason for that is like the problem with ICOs where uh, there's like a treasury on the other side is like, uh, you, people talk about this in the context of EOS. It's like, I could, um, if I am going to be the administrator of the treasury, I can contribute to my own ICO and like, I like get those funds back on the other side. And so now I just received a certain fraction of the supply for effectively free. I mean, it's not like that. It's like, obviously there's constraints around what the Ethereum foundation can do with the treasury and stuff. But, uh, that's like the big critique of ICOs that's very compelling to me, aside from all the legal stuff is like, um, you can kind of collude with the ICO buyers or you can self-deal in the ICO. Um, it's like impossible to know what happened, obviously. And like, you know, um, I think it worked out uh, reasonably well, although like it couldn't have been forecasted back in like 2014, how it would work out. But yeah, I th- like I do think they're different in terms of the, the, the paths that they took to get here, for sure. I think it matters at least a little bit. Um, but uh, it could have been way worse. Like it could have been worse. Like I think if Ethereum just did, uh, they went to proof of stake straight away, it wouldn't have succeeded. Um, I think it, mining is like a super underrated way to distribute coins, especially GPU mining, you know? Like mm-hmm. that, Ethereum was like lucky that they had GPU mining, let me tell you that.
0: As a, as a guy who got into the space by running 24 GPUs in his dad's ba- bathroom, I can definitely resonate there you with go. that. you
2: there you go because like people didn't realize how strong of like a viral hook this whole thing was like turn electricity into internet money people totally forget that there's like such a romance and charm to that and that disperses the damn thing so far because like mining is very competitive and like if you're a big miner like you got to like really like try hard to stay on top you know it's hard this dovetails with the um the the proof of stake debate about like the fundamental. Oh, we're going. So, yeah,
1: so this is actually perfect. Uh, well, I mean, one of the reasons why I am actually very skeptical of the Ethereum narrative is because of the lack of appreciation for proof of work, because I just see proof of work as being such a beautiful thing, having so many you know, potential um, positive externalities for the energy grid and things like that. Um, But I'm kind of curious, like, talk to us a little bit about proof of work outside of, like, a distribution method. Like, how do you see proof of work? And then from there, like, maybe you can compare and contrast with proof of stake.
2: Well, like, I heard it once said that, like, proof of work and proof of stake are actually taxonomically very different. Uh, They're not even, like, the same kind of thing. Um, So to me, proof of work, like, conflates a lot of things. Like, Nakamoto's proof of work uh, helps... Define distribution such that it's relatively fair. So like nobody can like buy, you know, a unit of the coin for like much less than it's worth. So that like, that's a great, great property. It also like helps the network, you know, converge to a single history, obviously you have the security properties. Uh, and like the great thing about it is that it's easy to reason about. Like once you understand it, it's quite simple to reason about. Um, even though we're still like learning some of the like interesting stuff about the security model. Proof of stake on the other hand is like very hard to reason about, um, at least in my experience. Like, first of all, there is no one canonical like proof of stake thing. There's no like one specification. Um, And, you know, I am like, I think people try and distinguish delegated proof of stake from proof of stake a lot. Um, And I think it's like a valid thing to do, but I think in practice, it's likely that you get delegation. And that more so than any like technical critiques or whatever would be my specific number one critique of proof of stake is that like, you end up with delegation regardless of how you design and tweak it, um, you know, such that uh, you encourage small stakers. Uh, I just think that that's unlikely. And I think that it encourages, it funnels people towards a custodial mode of engagement. Especially if you have slashing, slashing is a punishment for like not configuring your node correctly or something. I mean, there's like a a set of punishments, right? Uh, But I think the risk is that like Joe Q public sees a FAQ about slashing and they're like, okay, I'm not gonna run my node uh, I don't even want I don't trust myself to stake directly. I'll just like send my funds to Coinbase. And then at that point, you have like a delegated proof of stake model, and you've effectively signed over control over the chain to like the three biggest exchanges or custodians or whatever. I know that's like not the most original critique, but like to me that's like the number one most compelling critique of uh, of proof of stake,
0: leaving any technical stuff aside. So one thing I wanted to, to bring up and get your opinion on uh, while we're on the subject of, of proof of stake and well, you're bearish, but on the, at least this particular point I'm bullish on is uh, coming from Eric Wall's uh, proof of stake is less wasteful article. And the general thesis of that article is that uh, proof of stake is always going to be the most efficient because it is the uh, security provided to a proof of stake system is provided by cheap capital. And for a proof of stake system, cheap capital comes from people like me who are permabulls on the underlying Mm. asset. So Mm. I'm going to stake for the almost free, like I will almost stake for free. Uh, And that's hard to compete with, which means that Ethereum as a network doesn't have to pay me very much in order to receive a large amount of security. Mm. I will stake all of my Ether for a very low payment of just a little bit of Ether down the road and therefore it gets a lot of security. Uh, And so proof of stake inherently rewards bullishness on the asset, it rewards the most bullish people, which really uh, turns that security mechanism into a compounding security mechanism. And one of the quibbles I have with proof of work is that Hmm. it's very costly. It's, It's taking the people that are responsible for securing the chain and it's forcing them to sell the asset that the chain represents, which is diverging the incentives between, those, between two parties. It creates two parties. It creates the validators of the Bitcoin network and the holders of the Bitcoin asset. While those are parties are overlapping a significant amount, the forced selling, which we know is good for distribution, is also disalignment between the validators and the network. And uh, I was wondering your thoughts on that.
2: Well... Um, Have you guys read uh, like the Hasu Prestwich white paper on uh, on proof of work? Mm -hmm. Um, So like that codified an intuition that I'd had, which is like there's a reason why miners behave like super altruistic, and it's like actually just like an economic reason, which is like they have the embodied future of the network locked up in their Mm Asics. That's like the nice thing about Asics, right? Uh, so, like, whatever the the life cycle of those ASICs is, like, 18 months, whatever, they, you can just, like, through simple math, you can determine um, what, you know, rewards you're expecting. So, you have a stream of cash flow stretching into the future. And that means if you do something today to, like, damage the network and the price reflects that, you've, like, screwed yourself over, right? So, because uh, your, you know, your biggest capital outlay is that ASICs. So uh, certainly, the forced selling means you basically have to divest your stash of Bitcoin. I would say that if you are an industrial miner, you do have an interest in the future of the network, in as much as ASICs are, uh, you know, uh, a claim on cash flows into the indeterminate future. So, like I would say, proof of stake tokens are like synthetic ASICs. I think some people have made this analogy before. Um, you know, like a proof of stake token gives you a claim on potentially some, um, not interest per se, but like, it basically gives you anti-dilution rights. That's how I would describe it. I So I think it's like exactly correct to characterize um, uh, tokens in a proof of stake network as uh, effectively a synthetic ASIC. The thing is, though, that like in like venture capital, right, like my industry, uh, it would be weird to have anti-dilution rights. Uh, If you're a pre-seed investor, an angel investor, uh, because like it's in the founder's interest to allow uh, dilution for some investors uh, such that the first investors don't have like a totally huge piece of the company um, out of like historical luck kind of thing. So you would never see an anti-dilution provision, uh, a perpetual anti-dilution provision on like a cap table at the early stages, right? And the reason for that is like, you kind of need the distribution of ownership to churn such that new investors, uh, and like I promise I'll like bring this back to crypto, such that new investors can like have a sufficient piece of the company. So I think it would be bad if we have, sorry, I have a bird clock here. It would be bad if we have a situation where there are oligarchs and that have like a permanent claim on like a resource. So to me it's good that like ASICs depreciate. Let's say ASICs never depreciated and difficulty never went up. The like first ten people to make ASICs would just like perma win, right? They would never sell their ASICs. Uh they would just mine like a huge fraction of all the coins. And like so to me, that's like what a proof of stake token is like. It's like an ASIC that never depreciates and where difficulty never goes up. So it just like entitles you to a fixed fraction of like the issuance Um, or in put another way, it gives you a strong anti-dilution, right? Like there should be dilution in my opinion. And like, you could also say, this is a reason why fixed supply is also bad, right? Because fixed supply totally privileges the people that had Mm -hmm. the vision to buy an early stake in the network. What is
0: one Bitcoin other than one coupon for anti-dilution? Exactly. Yeah. So, it's like the same issue, yeah. And like
2: Vitalik said this too, like he thinks it's inorganic or weird that uh, that Bitcoiners want to have a claim on like the money supply of the world, right? Um, but like, I think if you hold that view, then you should also find uh, holding a token and proof of stake uh, to be like a little bit unnatural because like you have no real incentive or need to like sell it off because you don't have like a cost per se for holding it because it's like, Staking isn't like in practice that difficult or expensive. And then some people say to that, like, okay, well, then we'll just make staking really costly. Like, I don't know, maybe you have to like jump through some extra hoops to stake. To me, now you've just created proof of work again, you know? Um, I haven't even like really touched on like the core concept in the Eric Wall article. I think like to d- address what you said, uh, David, actually, um, I don't think you can count on the fact that there are holders like you that would. Um, stake um altruistically because you're like super bullish uh because you always have to like project out forward to like maturity you know um and at maturity i think you just like have economically rational agents that are making some like calculation about you know their um internal rate of return and their discount rate and stuff um so i think it should eventually equilibrate to like the risk-free rate plus some premium kind of thing um, but like to not to like monologue too much, but to talk on the Eric Wall piece, I think the main, main contention there is like that slashing works. And like if slashing works, um, and you can selectively like edit attacker balances and so on, then I would totally, totally concede that it is like materially cheaper. Like you need a less capital outlay to validators to achieve good security the thing I would contest is that like slashing is a socially scalable thing uh, to do. Uh, But uh,
0: yeah, I'm totally happy to bite the bullet on that. So moving on into different subjects, Uh, Nick, you've expressed uh, bearishness about the 2020s as a decade. Uh, Can you be the Debbie Downer for us and tell us why? What's the opposite of the roaring 20s? Like, uh, like the the burning 20s.
2: I would call it the decade of immiseration, right? So like life is just going to be miserable. Like you think today was worse than yesterday and yesterday was worse than the day before. Just repeat that for like a whole decade or two decades. Each day worse than the next, like materially worse than the next.
0: Why? What are, where do are the underlying foundations, the underlying currents of the world that are making that happen?
2: Because we have hit, the limits of growth. Like I know people are going to call me like a Malthusian or like you know uh, there's this big book in uh, in the 70s written called The Population Bomb by this guy Paul Ehrlich who I actually knew personally, um, which said like you know there's going to be famines in India because they're not going to like have enough food. And then he was wrong because people invented GMO high yield rice and people are like oh like Paul was totally wrong. Um, But, like, there was a technological shift, which meant that there weren't famines and so on. So, like, people will say, yeah, like, look, we'll always, like, figure it out. There's always a way to, like, work through these things as a society. But I'm just pretty much at this point, like, I'm close to being convinced that, like, the West is going to become Japanified, like, the Japanification of the West. And, like, you might say, like, well, what's wrong with that? Like, I like Japan, I like anime, you know, I like Nintendo. Um, but like Japan has had like a really miserable, uh, um, 30 years. So their stock market last peaked the Nikkei in 1989. And, uh, you know how everyone will say like in any given like 20 year period, the S&P 500 goes up, you know, by 7% on average. No, dude. Um, you say that until the fricking Nikkei 1989 happens and it goes down for 30 straight years. And like the effects on society, if that were to happen, would be catastrophic, right? Uh, pensions depend on the stock market hitting like typically like six to eight percent, which is obviously not going to happen.
0: Is um, this Eric Weinstein's embedded growth obligation thing that he keeps hammering on about? You know, I've never heard that phrase, but it sounds absolutely correct. And yeah. I, I agree, like, society
2: depends on growth. We bake growth into, like, virtually every financial model we have, right? And the question is, like, where does growth come from?
0: That's Two exactly places. it, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Productivity and population growth, right? Um, in, in the U.S., we have, like, okay population growth, but we are absolutely having a demographic shift, right? Productivity, like, it, we ha- if you look at the data, productivity hasn't been great. I think maybe it's missing something, maybe it's not counting open source, you know. Maybe that's like, there's secret productivity hiding somewhere that isn't uh, commercialized. Maybe open source is that. Maybe we just have more leisure time, I don't know. But certainly we're hitting limits of growth now. And like, society is not like ready to hit that wall. They can never acknowledge that like, the next 10 years are gonna be worse than the last ones. What they do instead is like, well, exactly what we've done. heap on tons and tons and tons of leverage they issued debt, which is just pulling future growth and prosperity into the present. And we're the most indebted pretty much we've ever been on like a relative basis, not on just like a nominal basis. Like corporate debt to the GDP um, is extremely high relative to like the historical normal. You know, Households have taken on a lot of debt. Obviously the government's taken on a lot of debt. So we've had like a nice 10 years here, like a last hurrah where we like try to pretend that this inevitable transition wasn't happening, but it obviously is. Um, And like the question is like, can the like Western mind like become okay with degrowth? And I think the answer is no. I think so many things are premised on just like permanent growth, permanent expansion, you know, the frontier of science being pushed forward, you know, finding new territory, like real estate. Um, it's our manifest sweat. destiny. Yeah, exactly. And like the question is like, what, where do we have left to expand? Like what, what is left to do? Um, and I, yeah, so that's basically why I'm bearish. I think people aren't prepared, specifically with respect to asset prices. People aren't prepared for them to decline for like a decade.
1: Um, so yeah,
2: I'm not feeling great about it.
1: I've been calling this on Twitter the great deleveraging and I, you know, it's really about leverage. Like uh, in the past, I think it was like uh, poor people got fucked or uh, people that made bad investments got fucked, but smart, prudent business people generally kind of um, were okay. But in this case, everyone's kind of getting fucked, right? Everyone is over leveraged. Yeah. Almost every prudent business person I know that was killing it for the last 10 years, if you look at them in this situation, they are not in a good situation. Um, yeah. And
2: like, There's I- like no good way to play this, though. Even if you had known what was coming, it would have been really hard to, to, to deal with what was coming. Because like, that's the interesting thing. Like, we were obviously due for a correction because we were incredibly leveraged, as you say. We like barely deleveraged in 2009, right? We had a bunch of stimuli, stimulus, lots of bailouts, quantitative easing. So we like, we like didn't take our medicine. And so like fast forward tons and tons and tons of new leverage, hidden leverage, tail risk, like just a lack of preparedness. Um, and then the catalyst we got wasn't just like a small catalyst. It wasn't like, oh, like pop the bubble. It was like the most profound catastrophic catalyst, which is like, holy crap, like of all the things to get to, like pop our leverage debt bubble, it's like this hundred-year pandemic. Like, obviously, that's going to be the most perfect storm imaginable. Um, I, it's like I expected something to happen, but I didn't expect this. You know,
1: I mean, it, it's kind of hard to expect it. Um, and I think that's why it's going to be hitting so hard, just because it's 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 across the board, and you know, even things like you know, travel where. Uh, things were going amazingly, right? Uh, Airbnb's blowing up, all these travel companies and startups blowing up. Uh, now, now they have nothing. It's going to zero. I'm kind of curious, right? Like we, I, I brought up the question earlier. Like, was it going to take to shift the like mental uh, architecture of how the world works from dollars to something like a hard money like Bitcoin? Like, do you think that this is what it takes? And it, it, do you still think like despite this, it's going to take 50 years for? For like the mental framework of the world to shift to something that's not dollarized or stablecoinized.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we certainly see these shifts in who issues the world's reserve currency, right? So that happens. It happens about every hundred years, right? So the last one, coincidentally, was um, around First World War. Uh, Britain handed over the reins to the USA. Um, but like it tends to happen at a time of like absolute crisis where like the world's hegemon, the leading power suffers some sort of catastrophic loss, right? So if the dollar loses its reserve status, like that won't be the headline. The headline will be like, you know, whatever UN is dissolved. uh, China belt and road initiative wins over everyone, uh, you know, and like, China seizes the Philippines or something. Um, so like if the dollar is dethroned as a global reserve asset, it will be on the back of like some horrible turmoil, some geopolitical shift. It's always linked to geopolitics in my view. Um, whether something has changed, I've definitely noticed something in the consciousness changing a little bit. Like people seem more, people have been asking me about Bitcoin, people that haven't asked me about it for, for like three, four years.
0: A math uh, teacher from high school DM'd me on Facebook to, to ask me how to buy Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, so some, something's changing for sure. I don't know what it was that like turned the normies onto it, but uh, something happened. I think the burr. Fed like, yeah, money, printer go, burr. Like for all their foibles, the Fed's like sort of done okay for the last like, you know, couple hundred years. Uh, however, like I do think that if we have genuine populism, like Chamath um the guy who runs social capital he says we're going from the gilded era of the robber barons to the progressive era which was like lots and lots of reforms uh redistributing society's wealth in a really material way labor reforms uh giving more people to vote stuff like that so if that happens like i can see um the like the shackles come loose right um In a sense, Trump has already effectively totally normalized uh, rampant expenditure for, like, anything, any project whatsoever. Um, uh, I think, like, he just asked for an an infrastructure, two trillion extra dollars on top for, like, infrastructure spending, right? So, and nobody, like, batted an eye at that, right? That's, that's like, 10% of, of GDP, maybe more. Uh, Like, I agree that we should be spending on infrastructure, but like the way it was received was what was interesting to me. So they're like, there's no tether on what is normal now, right? Like, I don't think either party is the party of like fiscal responsibility, right? Or monetary restraint. Uh, That's what
0: happens when you have control over the money spigot.
2: Yeah. And like both parties are totally aligned. Like, let's just, you know, let's do MMT, right? So they're doing MMT. Um, And like, that's fine. Maybe it'll work. But like, the point of the column I recently wrote in CoinDesk was like, even if it somehow works and stabilizes the value of the dollar, they've still compromised the independence of money, the neutrality of money, because effectively the government is now displacing the market in terms of like, how capitalist outcomes occur, like what companies succeed. It's not a function of like, how well you run your business anymore. It's just a function of how well you play the game. Uh, that's like literally what's happening right now. Literally right now um facts, facts. They're like like as we speak um there's some, there's some uh small businesses which are like going to be able to successfully lobby to get this like I forgot what it was called um this like uh effectively grant from the government and there's some that won't even know to do it so like the what dictates the 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 sort of capitalist outcome there is like your ability to like traverse the bureaucratic red tape that's like soviet shit man you know that was but, just
0: gonna say the the book uh, red noticed from uh, bill burr talked all about capitalism in russia and it was not about the business it was about how it was about how to it was about politics it was about politics among the ceos leading the businesses like how do we position ourselves in a political way not in a business-minded way
2: yeah so we should just be totally clear about what's happening right now like um the genuine capitalist like impulse which is like what american prosperity has been built on that's being punished and what is being rewarded is becoming adept at navigating the like many many bailouts that are going to come uh and navigating these like hidden pools of capital which like the fed is controlling through weird shadowy spvs with no accountability right so that's the game now like the game is totally different uh and we like need to be aware of that so like even if the dollar somehow retains its purchasing power relative to like, you know, other currencies, it has already been compromised in a really deep way, but in a way that's like kind of hard to perceive.
1: That was like so, so perfect. I could not have disagreed with, with, I could not have disagreed with anything that you said. Uh, We have a couple of lightning uh, questions and then we're going to call it. Um, The first one is like, let's talk about DeFi opportunities, threats, uh smoke smoke screens what's your thoughts um
2: uh i remain to be convinced probably on DeFi, i do think it's a very compelling idea to have like interoperable effectively banking services um uh i think there's like some hidden risks um particularly in terms of like stuff like uh for instance maker governance not to like Uh, to call out one project specifically, but like that to me like really demonstrates the risks. Um, I don't like um, this like covert veiling of where power is really vested in these projects. I like to make it really transparent. Um, And I don't like uh, decentralization theater. So when there is an entity that really does control things, I would prefer that that was like known to people. Uh, So to the extent that DeFi can like minimize that and create like genuinely open protocols that people use uh, I, I'm bullish on it, um, but like TBD on that probably. Have you read my
0: article, The Two Faces of Ethereum?
2: You know, I've been meaning to. I have it bookmarked.
0: Okay, so the thesis is that there's two faces, a human. There's like two spectrums, the or one spectrum, two sides. One's totally human, one's totally robot, and then DeFi apps can be anywhere along this spectrum. Uh, and then Uniswap, it represents our our gold standard of sorts, like the yeah. most robotic end of the spectrum. Yeah. The, th- the thesis is that the more things on the robotic end of the spectrum, the easier it is to build more things on Ethereum in general. And then it's also easier to build more robotic things on the end of the spectrum, meaning that like the the... Queries, the qualms that we have with things like governance uh, be, can become less and less relevant as more things get stacked up on the robotic end of the spectrum. Does that thesis resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. That's like a much better way of stating what I was just
2: trying to say. Um, to the extent that we can create like inhuman, cold, unfeeling protocols, we absolutely mm-hmm. should. To the extent that they're subjective and wishy washy and human, we're, we're actually recreating things that exist already in like a worse way. Uh, so like, if we're going to create, like, consortia and, like, things that look like the PayPal and the way the banking system works, like, it's totally not worth it. But if we can create, like, weird new things which just, like, operate robotically with inputs and outputs, 100%. Yeah, so that, that, that's, like, one thing that's encouraging is, like, I would say you and, like, people like Brian Sean Adams and, um, like, y- you guys tend to have, like, a really sober acknowledgement of these, like, actual trade-offs that exist. Which is good. Like, people, there are skeptical voices in the Ethereum community to talk about this stuff. So,
1: mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd call Ryan a skeptic, but um. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not a
2: skeptic. But like, he has definitely talks about like the trustlessness uh, trade-off or the the continuum kind
1: of thing. He, he talks about the right things. All right, what do Bitcoiners get wrong about Ethereum?
2: Um, I think Bitcoiners, the very common critique of Ethereum was like. Uh, nitpicking some like technical detail and saying that that would lead to the failure of the project because like some implementation detail is really bad or whatever and I think what they missed is that Ethereum is much more than some of its parts as I say at the beginning it's just like uh, very much a political set of opinions around the way money should be Uh, and I don't think the implementation details matter that much so fixating on them is unlikely to like yield uh, good critiques um, just because, like, the specific nature of Ethereum, I think, is malleable, like, in terms of the way that it uh, actually represents itself to the world. So, yeah, like, I saw a lot of critiques, you know, early in the day. It, like, the good critiques were like critiques of the DAO. Like, to me, that's like a great critique because it's like, look, there is political discretion happening right here. That sucks. But a bad critique was like, oh, Ethereum shouldn't have used, um, you know, ETHash or something, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing.
1: All right. Opposite question. Wait. What to well, go for it? I didn't know uh, we were okay. responding if, to these rapid fires. This if is going to do the fire. opposite
0: question. Yeah, let's do the opposite, yeah, question. I'll opposite, opposite question. Opposite what question.
1: What do what ETH heads slash uh, blockchainers uh, altcoiners get wrong about Bitcoin?
2: It's not about the tech. It's about the it's about the the values, um, and that's Bitcoin's big advantage. Uh, really well codified values. And like probably things like the long-term security issue, like fee, long-term fee issue, like security thingy, that can probably be resolved if there's like enough people that take Bitcoin really seriously and like are willing to like work on a solution. Um, so stuff like that isn't, won't be the doom of Bitcoin. What will be the doom will be like indifference, uh, not churning the UTXO set enough, you know, like, not having vibrancy in terms of who owns the coin, not uh, devising new use cases, which like let people do inter- interesting things. Um, so, like, the same way Bitcoiners fixate on like um, implementation issues in Ethereum, some Ethereans will fixate on like things like the fee issue, as if like we can't figure out how to smooth out fees kind of thing, you know.
0: Fast forward 20 to 30 years from now, uh, you come into the world and you find out that Bitcoin and Ethereum, they all still exist, but there's kind of just more for hobbyists, kind of a niche subject. What happened between now and 20 to 30 years from now that caused these things to not become the successfully adopted systems that we hope that they will? It could be that like uh,
2: open validation with mutually untrusting nodes is either too expensive or too difficult to run in a truly sustainable way. And we end up collapsing back to trusted nodes, which is effectively consortia. Um, uh, So like we collapse to something that looks like EOS or Libra effectively. And it turns out that that is actually the right blend of like convenience and uh all the nice things we like about blockchains so it like it's very possible that like you know uh proof of work or like even this like pure proof of stake idea uh they end up just like not yielding a system that like the general public wants yeah i I think there's like a 10 percent probability of that the other thing would be like if it turns out that stable coins or just like fiat on chain is just like super, super compelling and replaces Bitcoin and Ether as like the native uh, uh like token kind of thing, the native unit. Like there's definitely a bear case for Ethereum, I think, where you'd say like people are just going to use stable coins are not going to own Ether.
0: Nick, I uh, really appreciate you coming on to POV Crypto and sharing your thoughts. If our listeners want to find out more about you and, and follow along with your thoughts, uh, where should they go?
2: Find me on Twitter. That's uh, Nick Carter, NIC uh, underscore underscore Carter. So that's two underscores. Uh, you can also find me other places, but Twitter is, uh, is the best one.
0: Nick, you are definitely one of the the leaders that I turn to when it comes time to learning about things that I would not have read about myself. So I appreciate your uh, appreciate your brain in this space. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, this has been really fun.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Everyone, you can find the pod at POV CryptoPod. You can find me at CK underscore Snarks.
0: All right. Thanks, Nick.